Welcome to the Scholars and Storytellers podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Scholars and Storytellers at UCLA. This teen-focused episode, recorded on February 5th, 2021, is titled, What Would Leslie Nope Do? with Michael Schur, Dr. Pamela Hieronymi, and Navia Robinson, moderated by Myra Karan. Michael Schur is the creator of The Good Place and co-creator of Parks and Rec. Dr. Pamela Hieronymi is a professor of philosophy at UCLA and consulted on The Good Place. Our teen guest, Navia Robinson, is an actress in Disney Channel's Raven's Home and Netflix's Free Reign. Our moderator, Myra Karan, is a PhD student at UCLA and a CSS Junior Fellow. Thank you for tuning in and we hope you enjoy. Welcome. I'm Yelda T. Ools. I'm the founding director for the Center for Scholars and Storytellers. We're based in the psychology department at UCLA, where I teach and I do research. At the Center for Scholars and Storytellers, we focus on the intersection of youth, academic research, and storytelling. As a former movie exec, I know how much storytellers care that the work they do has a positive impact on young people. So we work to make it easier for them and help them access insightful research that might inform their stories. This is the very first team-facing event for CSS. And a big thank you to Maya Hernandez and her team who pulled it off. They did an amazing job. We're really, really proud of them. So why are we doing this? We feel it's critical that both academics and content creators who are studying and making stories for youth get young people's perspective, and that's where you come in. We're really honored and thrilled to have the guests you will meet tonight who will be sharing their wisdom. And we're also thrilled that so many teens are tuning in. We hope tonight we'll begin to learn what you want, what you care about, and we promise we will do our best to share those questions and your passions to both scholars and storytellers. We may not get to all of you and all of the questions tonight, but feel free to put whatever you wanna ask in the comments and hopefully we'll get to them either in tonight's event or in the future. Now I'm handing this off to uh, Myra Karan, a fellow for CSS and a fourth year graduate student in psychology at UCLA. Thanks Myra. Thanks so much, Yelda, for getting us started and welcome everyone. We're super excited to kick off our first ever Center for Scholars and Storytellers Youth Engagement Q&A. We have an exceptional panel of guests, speakers joining us for today's live stream. What would Leslie Nope do? A conversation for youth about civic engagement representation on TV. So without further ado, I'll begin by introducing our panelists. First up, it's an honor to introduce Michael Schur. Mike is a critically acclaimed TV producer, writer, and actor. He is known for many of his successful creations and productions, including but not limited to The Good Place, Parks and Recreation, The Office, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and Master of None. Mike has been the recipient of several Primetime Emmy Award nominations and has received awards for his work on SNL and The Office. Currently, Mike is working on his upcoming series Q-Force on Netflix and Rutherford Falls on NBC's Peacock. We are honored to have him here today with us. Thanks for being here, Mike. You said the word honored twice, and that kind of freaks me out. <laughs> I think you will live up to that term, though. I <laughs> See, that's what, but that's why it freaks me out. If you say you're honored that someone's here, then now I feel like I have to like speak in a British accent in order to live up to the billing. <laughs> you're going to be great. We're super excited to next introduce esteemed philosopher, Dr. Pamela Hieronymi. 
Dr. Hieronymi received her PhD in philosophy from Harvard University in 2000, after which she began working as a professor at UCLA in the Department of Philosophy. Her work addresses moral responsibility, forgiveness, blame, and self-control with respect to our own states of mind, especially our beliefs, intentions, and moral motivations. In addition to her academic pursuits, Dr. Hieronymi has been featured on radio and in print for her fascinating work, and she served as a consultant for the NBC sitcom created by Mike, The Good Place. We're beyond excited to hear from her today. So welcome to Dr. Hieronymi. Thank you. And last but certainly not least, I'm pleased to introduce actress, dancer, model, and current star on Disney Channel's hit series, Raven's Home, Navia Robinson. Her resume includes her breakout role as DeAsia in the network drama Being Mary Jane, and her incredible talent can also be seen in Netflix's Emmy award-winning series, Free Rain. Despite being just 15 years old, Navia has created a space for herself in the industry, and you can watch her bring incredible passion to the role of Nia Baxter on Raven's Home. We're so thrilled to have you here with us today, Navia. Thank you very much. I now see what Mr. Shura was saying about the expectation that you're setting for us. Well, now you've made it worse because you called me Mr. Sure. Now I feel like I'm 100 years old. <laughs> yeah, you need to start talking in that British accent, I think. Yeah, really? <laughs> All right, so welcome everyone. It's super great to have all three of you here with us today to talk about the role of media and TV in portraying civic engagement to youth to encourage them to engage in activism. So first, I'd like to start off the conversation by posing to Mike the question that we really highlighted in today's event. So Mike, you create incredibly entertaining content that really appeals to the youth of today. Parks and Recreation is a show that demonstrated the triumphs and tribulations of being in public office from the perspective of a woman who is working her way through government. If Leslie Nope were here with us in today's America, what do you think she would do? And what would her response be to the events that have unfolded in just the past year? Oh, brother. Um, so part of the work of designing a, a TV show and especially a main character is before you write a word of dialogue or, or try to come up with a plot or a story, you just spend weeks and weeks and weeks trying to like shade in every aspect of the character's personality. You ask yourself questions like, okay, if this person were trapped in an elevator, how would she get out? Or if this person had, um, you know, we're on a cross country road trip with her best friend, what music would she listen to? You just keep, mm -hmm. you keep like throwing these sort of scenarios at yourself in order to really get a handle on what the character's like. And even if none of those details ever end up in the show, you still have this kind of reservoir of understanding about who the person is. And so when we were working on that show, Greg Daniels and I, who, who created it with me, and we did that work, we kept coming back to the same thing about Leslie Nup, which is just... She, She's an optimist. Like that was the sort of North Star for everything that she did is that she would take a punch and get right back up and start fighting again. And so, you know, a, a lot of people have asked me because the show was specifically about government, about good government and the difference between good government, and bad government, and specifically about trying to navigate your way through difficult times in government when people are actively seemingly rooting against you and want you to fail for some reason when you're in the government. The thing we kept coming back to is like, well, she would just won't give up. Like she was just indefatigable. So, you know, in terms of what she would have done over the last four years, but specifically the last year and really over the last mm -hmm. month, 
is keep fighting. Like that's the North star of her entire personality profile. And, and that might seem a little vague, but you see someone like Elizabeth Warren, for example, who just every day is like, I'm proposing this bill to fix this problem. I am, we're not going to let this slide, even though we're fighting on this front, we're still going to go after this problem. Like she has the things that she believes in and she just fights for them all the time. And it doesn't matter what, other people say or how how much of a long shot some of the things that senator warren fights for these are the things she cares about she keeps fighting for them so the simplest way to put this is like that's what leslie nope would be doing right now she would be in her office at four in the morning writing memos and sending messages and making phone calls and sending texts and trying to get whatever it is that she was working on through one way or the other part of the backstory of her character that we had on the show we actually mentioned one i think was that I read an article about Bill Clinton. He slept four hours a night. I don't know if that's true or not, but I remember reading that. And I was like, all right, well, Leslie sleeps four hours a night. That's the reality. She goes to sleep at one and she wakes up at five. And and that was in part because based on what we showed of her in the show, that's kind of the only way she could have done most of the things. <laughs> You know, she would show up with Christmas presents the, uh, and brownies and, and have written a thousand memos and she wrote books and she recorded albums or whatever else she did. So that's what she would be doing. She would be doing the same things that we said she did on the show, which is just fighting, 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 working, working, working as hard as she possibly could to, to get her agenda through and in front of the right people so that it could get passed. That's really the only way to, to look at it, I think. Yeah, I really love what you said. It's really simple, but just keep fighting. And I feel like that's something you see throughout the entirety of the show. And I guess I wanted to, to sort of turn over the next question to Navia. So as the sole teen on this panel, and as someone who is often depicting characters that teens might be watching and learning from, it'd be really great to hear your perspective on the role of the media in encouraging youth to undertake civic engagement opportunities or to keep fighting. And I want to ask, have there been any roles or storylines that have really motivated you as a teenager to get more involved with your community? You know, I think what was so great about children's programming that I watched when I was growing up, I'm still growing up, but when I was younger, was that the characters, and, and I think that's still uh, true today, they were always just so ambitious and just so motivated. And I think even if their motivations weren't specific to activism, it was always about something. And they always had a, a purpose and they would always accomplish it and there would be some bumps in the road, but it would happen. And I think being able to see that on TV, that philosophy that anything's possible, that kind of really inspires you. It definitely inspired me. And uh, yeah, I think social media is super important, of course, when it comes to mm -hmm. uh, trying to get information from it. But I think it's really important that teens remember that they're only going to be uh, effective in their activism when they're really passionate about something. Mm -hmm. So social media is an incredible platform and you can get so much information from it, but making sure that you really take your time and sit with all of the loads of information that you're learning and processing is super important. So you can really uh, get to the core of how you feel about it and how you want to go about changing what, what you see needs changing. Yeah, definitely. So I guess moving to Dr. Hieronymi as an expert in moral philosophy, how do you think your work informs the need for youth of our society today to really engage with their communities and undertake civic responsibilities? Huge question. I think probably the quickest way is to focus on the philosophy that ended up for at certain points in this in the spotlight on the good place, which is contractualism. Ethics is about how we get along with one another. And essentially that the rules of ethics are the rules we could all agree to if we all have the same say in deciding what those rules would be. So it's simple in a way, and it's just it's part of the idea of of the common good 
mm-hmm. that, that you hear people talking about now. And one of the fantastic things I think about a lot of the people I encounter, the young people I encounter in my classes and that we see in the public eye Mm-hmm. is the sense of the common good. How do you think we can make conceptions of, you know, how to be a good person, as we talk about a lot, in, or at least as the, the Good Place talks about a lot, um, how can we make this conception of how to be a good person more central to television, but also more accessible to a wider audience? So for a lot of people, their introduction to moral philosophy might have come from the good place. Do you see avenues as to how to reach more general audiences about the information related to moral philosophy in other ways beyond television? It's a great question. And it was one of the real privileges was to work with Mike and to be able to tell him what I know and have him pick it up and do what he knows how to do which is storytelling. In the time since we've, uh, he shared with me some, am I allowed to say you have a little book of a a book he has? Sure. (laughs) And through the whole time, what's really stood out to me is how crucial stories are for reaching people. And it's not the way that I've been trained to think. I've been trained to think in arguments and sort of abstract structures but but interacting with Mike and doing this project, it made me realize that the most effective moments in my teaching are always moments of storytelling. And so my takeaway from that is the importance of, if what we want to do is bring some of the insights from, from, from a field like philosophy into the mainstream, is that, that it will require these collaborations because you know, it's, it's not my training, it's not my talent, but I feel like it's been very, and, and even I've done a little bit of talking with journalists as mm-hmm. a result of my involvement. And there too, pairing up with people who, where we can together bring, bring the message across in, a, in an effective way. Yeah, I mean, I think that just relates to what you were saying. I'm going to try to pronounce your last name, ready? Uh-huh. Dr. Harmo, no, Dr. Hieronymi. Perfect. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, what you're just saying is so important about perspective. And I think that's really how, how you can access people and really kind of reach that common good is just on trying to understand other people's perspective and having sympathy for other people and, and why they think the way that they do. But also, I think you said a little bit something about um, like who decides the standard of what common good is. Mm-hmm. And that's a really great point, too, because everybody has got a different definition of, of what common good is. And I think it definitely needs to be discussed more. Mm-hmm. You know what's funny so, too what, about Pamela said a second ago about storytelling as a means of teaching philosophy is if you read some of the sort of famous philosophical works as I had to slash was forced to do in order to write the show, if you've never read any of I'll, I'll, I'll try to explain the general feeling that you get from reading them. I mean, oh, no. The general feeling is like blah, 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 impossible, confusing tortured sentences, long run on sentences, references to a thousand million trillion other things you haven't read, blah, 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 (laughs) for like 800 pages. And then the person writing it will go like, okay, let me put this into like a a narrative. Imagine you're walking by a river and you see a drowning child and suddenly you're like, oh my God, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Because I didn't understand a single thing you've written for the last 800 pages. And suddenly you're just like, what if you're, uh, you know, like uh, in the contractualism in the w- the book, What We Owe to Each Other, that Pamela's uh, mentor, Tim Scanlon, wrote. He only wrote it. He's not like, 
he wasn't writing this in the 17th century. The book came out in like 1999 or something. And it, it's very difficult to read. But at one point he gives you, he's, every so often he'll give you like a little story. And like the story will be, imagine there's a guy working at, at ESPN and he falls behind a giant transistor thing and he's getting zapped. And the question is like, do you shut down the broadcast of the, of the sporting match that's being watched by all these people who will be sad if you shut it down in order to get him out? Or do you just let him get fried? And when he does those things, or when any philosopher does those things, when he when he or she takes the the lesson that he or she is trying to impart and puts it into the form of a story, it's essentially the only time that a layperson can really access the philosophy that um, he or she is discussing. And it's ironic, I think, that there haven't been more of these collaborations. I mean, every philosopher dating back to the pre-Socratic philosophers, to Plato, to Aristotle, to all the way through... It, with few exceptions, every single one of them has used stories as a way to illustrate what it was they were trying to get across. Kant's writing, there's the, he tells his own story about a murderer coming to your door to try to murder your brother and whether you're allowed to lie to him. And so, and that was in the 17th century or 18th. But the point is, is that it's, it's interesting that there haven't been more of these kinds of collaborations to me because philosophy is a very high barrier to entry. There is no more important discipline in the world, in my opinion. It, 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 it's a group of people who for thousands of years have been sitting around trying to get people to be better and to do nicer things for each other. And yet it's essentially inaccessible to the great majority of the people on earth because the writing can be so technical and, and so difficult to follow. So I'm so happy that we did it. I, I, I really loved working on the show. And it's also, it was sort of surprising to me that no one had done it already because I think it's perfect delivery mechanism for very difficult ideas to try to tell them narratively and to try to make them funny and to try to, to take the heat off of the people who were trying to access them and the pain and the anxiety of trying to follow those books that I experienced when I read them all to just kind of like take the temperature down and go like, look, we're going to tell you what this person meant or what this person thought mattered, but we're going to do it in a way that is narrative and enjoyable instead of like uh, giving you a migraine. Right. Well, and what's, what was interesting about The Good Place is that you did it with moral philosophy. Right. So you can find uh, like the, the Matrix and the Minority Report mm -hmm. and, you know, you can find philosophical questions explored there. And and to your point, Star Trek, things like Star Trek, the old Star Trek did, yes. like the, if you watch those old episodes, they are straight up doing moral philosophy. Like they're they're doing, you know, Spock's mantra was the, the, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Like he was a straight up utilitarian. Most of the plot they did were political allegories to what was going on in the United States, specifically in Vietnam and, and elsewhere in the late 60s, or it was more philosophy. So yes, it, we're hardly the first show to ever do it. But also science fiction and what you might call genre storytelling lends itself to to kind of trafficking in moral philosophy more easily because you're in, you're in this like crazy, you know, outer space world. And they, they sort of you're encountering other cultures and and other planets and you can invent whole societies that have their own rules and then have a kind of debate on the show about those rules. I mean, I, I think you would also say, by the way, that The Good Place was itself science fiction. Like it, yeah. it falls it pretty easily in the category. You know? I mean, I, what you were talking about, uh, those circumstances that were described within the philosophy books that you read. And I just remember there was a specific episode in The Good Place was super eye-opening to me. It was like the characters were in, in a train and she, she had to decide whether or not she was going to run over. I mean, I'm explaining your own show to you. So you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, the trolley problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. And whether or not you, uh, you know, you just don't know the context. And so you could run over, you know, five people who were really bad people. You know what I'm talking about. Yes, anyway, the trolley problem. Just, yeah. 
yeah, concepts that I would never understand otherwise, being able to see them represented like that with characters who like are so funny and who feel like real people. I mean, it really makes me love TV that much more and love cinema that much more because you're able to show these concepts that are actually important and put them into a format that people can consume. And thank you guys for doing that. Because you guys- <laughs> well, That's another, important. it's another, fu- I'm glad you liked that episode. It's another that's fun good. thing about narrative storytelling and specifically comedy is like when I, I've been now doing this for 25 years and when I would read philosophical thought experiments out there and they're all really interesting and fun to chew on and they're also deeply hilarious like the trolley <laughs> problem is deeply hilarious like you're it's told very it was written the the initial conception was a woman named Philippa Foote who was writing actually about abortion in 1967 and it was then jumped on by another woman named Judith Thompson who sort of added to it and it's been discussed pretty continuously in academic circles for 50 years but the initial conception is like it's a very serious topic and she's addressing it very seriously but the actual problem is like you're on a trolley the brakes fail ahead of you is five people who are going to be killed by the trolley do you pull the lever and only kill one person that's a hilarious question to, to just pose to someone like, it's so horrifying and then as it got modified it got funnier and funnier it was like well what if you know one of the people and it's yeah. like, well, that's so much worse. Like if you know one of the people and now you're like, do I murder my friend or do I not? And then the famous version is there's a huge like weightlifter guy who's on a bridge above the tracks. Do you shove that person onto the tracks who then act as a trolley stopping device? <laughs> and it's like, these, this is ridiculous. Like they're all, and so that the, the real joy of it for me and the other writers was saying like, these are really serious questions and understanding what it means to be a good person in the world and why you're making the choices you make is dependent on, on knowing why you're answering these questions, the way that you're answering them and really teasing them apart and thinking about all of their components, but also the questions themselves are hilarious. And so it was like, it was, we just felt like we had tapped into this huge, very rich vein of philosophical thought experiments and were able to then mold them and conform them into, into something that was easily digestible by a person who didn't know anything about them. And that, that's sort of the dream. Hi listeners. We hope that you are enjoying this episode of the Scholars and Storytellers podcast. The Center for Scholars and Storytellers is an organization dedicated to bridging the gap between scholars and storytellers to promote positive youth development. Are you interested in learning more about the other projects we are working on? Check out our website at scholarsandstorytellers.com and find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by searching scholars and storytellers. Now back to the conversation. You know, I think it's it's really funny that that you take the trolley question and put some comedy and humor behind it. And you definitely can see how you do that in the good place as well. And one thing that I really love that you guys had said was just the role that um, storytelling can have in terms of teaching people something. And and, you know, I feel like these concepts like you guys described relating to philosophy or more specifically moral philosophy can get really jumbled and confusing if you're reading like the original documents. But the fact that you guys were able to take some of these really important lessons about what it means to be good and distill it into a format that's digestible and entertaining for people is is really special. 
And on the topic of The Good Place, I wanted to just take a moment to talk a little bit about what we did at the center to elevate youth voices. Students and teens and tweens from across the country participate in a blog competition. And the blog was surrounded by the, or it was focused on the question that we're talking about today, which is about civic engagement during youth. And basically we had one winner and the winner was Poppy. She's a 14 year old and Poppy's birthday is coming up soon. And so she asked us if we could read a message to Mike because she's a huge fan of your work. And she also submitted a question for both Mike and Dr. Hieronymi. So I'm just going to read the message really quick and then I'll, I'll move on to the question. So Poppy says, I just wanted to say that I'm incredibly grateful to Michael Schur for working on and creating some of my favorite TV shows. I absolutely love Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Office, and The Good Place. His work has truly been a big part of my life and I'm amazed that I get to ask him a question. So Poppy's question for Mike and also for Pamela, uh, because you worked on The Good Place as well, was what kind of research and preparations did you do to ensure that you portrayed civic engagement as best as you could on shows like Parks and Rec and also on The Good Place? I suppose I should start and then Pamela can join in. First of all, thank you, Poppy. That's very nice of you. And you have a cool name. So we wrote Parks and Rec in 2008. And some of the people who, like Poppy, who's 14, might not even remember this, but 2008 was a very dicey time in a different way than today is dicey. Uh, the financial crisis was happening. The world was collapsing around us. And what became clear was that government was going to be playing a much more active role in people's lives on a day-to-day -day basis than it had been, I think, um, in the previous few decades. So we to to research that show we went and talked to a lot of local politicians local uh, and public servants um, people who worked in parks departments and and small departments in various cities around around los angeles we went out to pomona and we went to burbank and we went to a bunch of different cities uh, and then we also went to a bunch of city council meetings if you uh once the world is back up and running if you are bored and you are looking for some good entertainment, uh, attend your local city council meeting, wherever you live in the world. It is truly wild because part of this great system of democratic representation that we have in this country means that town after town, city after city, the representative government of that municipality has to meet a certain number of times and has to open the floor to comments and questions <laughs> from the public. And if you watch Parks and Rec, you know that there, uh, we portrayed a lot of those scenes on the show. They're not exaggerated. That is pretty much what it's like. I always wondered that too when watching the yeah. show. <laughs> it, is, it is pretty wild. And, like, and there's something sort of beautiful about it, right? Because it, that is a wonderful aspect of, it's what sets countries like America apart from countries like North Korea or Russia or something, which is you get to show up and yell at the people you put in office, whatever you want. You get... Some, some places it's two minutes, some places it's five minutes, but anyone who wants to yell and scream can show up and yell and scream about whatever you want to yell and scream about. So anyway, we, we did a lot of that. And then after that, it was just a question of paying attention to the news and really trying to follow at, at, at a microscopic level the ways in which local governments were affecting the lives of the people they represented in very tangible ways, not in abstract ways of like, you know, the, during the financial crisis, it was like, you know, we're going to pass an $800 billion loan out bailout program. And there's all this sort of abstract stuff. What we were interested in is like a person shows up and says, there's this intersection 
near my house, it's really dangerous and I want you to put a stop sign up. And like, what, how do you do that? Like who, who gets involved and, and how hard is it to accomplish? The, the short answer is it's really hard to accomplish even the most simple thing. Doing all that research really helped us in, helped inform us about how we wanted to portray the main character, Leslie Nope, which again, it was like, whatever the problem is, it doesn't matter how small it is. If this thing helps someone, I'm going to do it because that's the right thing to do as a, as a public servant. So that was the, that was most of the research was just talking to people who have those jobs and then really closely following news stories and aspects of the world to try to get story ideas and to really try to track the ebb and flow of the way that government was functioning for better or worse. When it came to the good place, I had only taken a couple of philosophy classes in college and I realized pretty pretty early on as I was developing the show that I needed a, a bunch of people to help me. And so I poked her, I figured it would be good if one of them were local. So I poked around on the UCLA website and I found a woman named Dr. Pamela Hieronymi who had written a lot about ethics and specifically had written a, a, a paper about trying to be a better person, which was the entire premise of the show is that Eleanor Shellstrap was going to was a bad person, or at least a mediocre one and was going to try to become a better one. I didn't read the entire paper. If I had, I might have been discouraged because the conclusion of the paper appears to be that it's impossible to try to be a better person. And, and uh, Pamela explained to me when we finally met up, but I asked her to have coffee with me. And she sat and explained very patiently why it's impossible to try to become a better person. And my heart sank as I realized uh, I was not going to be able to actually write this show. And then eventually I, I was like, does any philosopher say that it's possible to, be, to try to become a better person? And she paused for a very long time. And she said, I guess sort of Aristotle. And I was like, great, that I got one, I got one philosopher <laughs> who claims that the premise of my show isn't completely uh, misinformed. But Pamela, the answer to the question about doing research, it really, aside from just reading a bunch of stuff myself, it, it, the answer is Pamela and another guy named Todd May who um, Pamela came in, Navia mentioned the trolley problem, Pamela teaches the trolley problem. And she came in to our writer's room and like gave us essentially her philosophy 101 lecture on the trolley problem. And that was a big part of the research of the show was when we had things we didn't understand, we had people like Pamela that we could call. And, and they were so cute. They were like, we don't want to answer these questions. We might be wrong. I don't know what you're thinking. <laughs> Very funny. But it turns out you can be good. You can try. So I, I explain my thing. So, so the problem is if, if you're, if you're like Eleanor, you don't have a good motive. And if you're, in fact, if you, if you're like Eleanor, your motive for being good is itself bad. Like you have a bad motive for being good. So then someone like Aristotle says, oh, no problem. Just act like the good person, you know, fake it till you make it. Practice makes perfect. But but wait a minute, if I'm just faking it and practice makes perfect, why won't I become a great faker? Why won't I just be like really good at faking virtue for a bad reason? Mm -hmm. like, I have to actually become a good person. And then the point of the paper, it was that 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 involves what Navia said earlier, it involves like opening yourself up to other people's experiences and other people's ways of looking at things and being willing to be changed by the things you encounter, which isn't a matter of trying, that's a matter of receiving. So that's the... And we, then, did, we did that day get into a sort of a semantic argument about what trying we meant. did. Yeah. Because, I, because at my point was like, I feel like that is trying. I feel like if we're all trying to be more like Navia is suggesting, which is to say more receptive to 
other people's worldviews and everything. That is a thing you have to try to do. You can't just snap your fingers and go like, all right, I'm open to your way of looking at the world. It requires practice and, and effort. And so I remember thinking like, I may be able to get off on a technicality here if, yeah. I, define, if I define the word trying differently than, than well, that. Especially if you're yeah. gonna follow Mike's very good advice and go to a city council meeting, you really need to try then. Yes, that sounds like a real recommendation for the yeah. youth. <laughs> and by the way, it is. And, and we're talking about civic engagement, right? And and so like, you may not get a ton out of it in a sort of nuts and bolts way, but civic engagement isn't a thing that you can just wear like a coat for a day and then toss aside. Civic engagement is a sort of a lifestyle, I think. Yeah. And it, it is, you know, when I was a kid, when I was Navia's age, civic engagement meant something very different than it means now. Civic engagement or, or caring or empathy or whatever you want to call it meant like, you read a book or someone got you a calendar for Christmas or Hanukkah and the calendar was like one good thing you can do for the environment every day. It was like, don't leave the water running when you brush your yeah. teeth and you felt like I'm civically engaged. This is fantastic. Yeah. And it's now civic great. engagement. Yeah. Now civic engagement is like, if we don't reduce the particulate matter in the atmosphere by 0.3 <laughs> grams per cubic foot or whatever in the next five years, we're all going to die. And so- yeah. The, the way the way that like kids are uh, young people, I should say, not just kids, but younger people, the way that they understand civic engagement with everything from, you know, like the Parkland kids to Greta Thunberg to all of the people who are engaged, like they are capital E engaged and they understand the world in ways that we never did or could have when we were their age. And that's what's really inspiring is if you can access their energy and their drive and their determination and kind of try to clarify for people young and old what it is that matters and how to go about trying to fix it. Like there is an enormous opportunity right now in the way there never has been before. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, speaking of the youth and, and those that want to get involved, we had so many youth submit questions that they wanted to ask you guys today at the panel. So I want to move on to that portion since we're running out of time. I want to direct the first question over to Navia. So we got a question from an adolescent uh, asking, how do you balance having a character be comedic while also having their efforts as an activist um, and change be taken seriously? That's such a great question because it's something, it's a question that we deal with on set a lot, actually, and just a conversation that happens a lot between like the actors and the writers. Um, obviously, it's a Disney Channel show, it's kids programming, so we deal with a lot of censorship and we have to be super sensitive about the way things are addressed and um, there has to be a certain amount of jokes per page and yada, yada, yada. But at, at the end of the day, I think it's kind of our responsibility to evaluate where kids are now or where people my age are now and how much more aware we've become and how I think we crave more knowledge than perhaps what some uh, writers who are older would expect, you know, and I think it's about valuing the perspective of, of young people, not to <laughs> toot my own horn, I guess, but of, of people um, who the shows are ultimately made for anyway. I think we just need to understand who our audience is and how we can get through to them. And usually that's through, as that question suggested, just kind of cutting straight to the chase and being honest when it comes to speaking about activism. And, and yeah, yeah, definitely. Mike, do you have any sort of uh, takeaways just given Leslie Nope's character? Um, you know, one youth sort of talked about how they noticed that Leslie seemed a bit more ditzy in the first season, but it might have been sort of tamed down a little bit in follow-up seasons. Yeah, I mean, uh, my answer to this question would be strikingly similar to Navia's, I would say, because, you know, when you're writing a TV show, you have all of these 
you know things you've got to juggle it's got to be if it's a comedy there's a there have to be a certain number of jokes. It's got to be, you have to break it up into three segments, each of which is seven minutes long, roughly speaking. And there's all these kind of hurdles that are just going to the production. And so, you know, you just have to be really committed to adding a, yet another hurdle willingly. And that hurdle is that the show needs to be about something and needs to matter and needs to have a point of view. And if you can do that, and if you if you don't try to think of that as like an add-on, if you just bake it into the central DNA of the show, then that just becomes like how you make this show, right? You make it with jokes and you make it in this way and make it with these actors and you ha and it has to have a message, which is hard to do, but it's <laughs> worth it if you can sort of pull it off. Um, as far as Leslie, yeah, Leslie, we wrote, we always had it in our head that she was a sort of eternal optimist who didn't have any real political savvy. And with the, the journey of her character over the course of the show was going to be that she just learned how to be more sort of politically savvy and, and get more of a backbone. And what ended up happening completely accidentally was that she came off in the first season as like a as a ditz or as a person who wasn't very smart, which was obviously the opposite of what we wanted to say. We wanted her to be incredibly smart and very well read. We described her internally as a person who had read 10,000 books about golf, but had never actually gone golfing. That's <laughs> sort of her. So she knew everything about everything, right? But she just didn't have any practice actually putting it into action. So that was totally accidental. And it, and it killed me because Amy Poehler is just about the least ditzy person I've ever met in my life. And the <laughs> idea that the character who wasn't supposed to be ditzy, played by Amy, who was definitely not ditzy, would come off that way was like oh no we really screwed up and it was a very quick course correction for us like we we very quickly when we got that feedback we changed course but it still kills me that that's what people think of that first I think thing. it's the unfortunate association of being positive and an optimist with ditziness totally. I, I see that all the time and I like I like to be as active as I can and I, a lot of time I'll get remarks and feedback from people who are usually older than me via social media or other <laughs> that you're being a little too unrealistic, which could be true. And I, I don't think we're ever going to achieve a perfect world, but I also don't think it's naive to strive for one. And so I think that's just a common thing. That Well, you're being naive is a way for people who are scared to try to keep people who are younger and more energetic and more interesting than they are, like in their place, you know, like, it's just like, you're, you're I, I'm, I'm old and wise and you're young and naive and I know what it's like, just ignore it. If someone calls you naive, just ignore them. It's a, that, that is a, that's not a, person who has any business weighing in on whatever it is that you're talking about. Hi, listeners. We hope that you're enjoying this episode of the Scholars and Storytellers podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review us and share it with your friends. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you would like to view the video version of this episode, you can find it on our YouTube channel. Now back to the conversation. So moving on to another question from Kayla Kramer, is there a greater push, do you guys think, to show civically engaged characters because of, of our current political climate? Mm, I think so, I would say. I mean, yeah. I, I think that with the number of serious problems the world is facing right now, if you try to present a TV show with a bunch of characters who don't care at all about the world, it's <laughs> going to seem they're going to seem horribly out of step, yeah. you know? And that doesn't mean that every single show uh, on every network has to be weighty and heady and involve discussions of climate change and you know so the benefits of solar and wind power versus coal burning fuel you know whatever but it does mean that, that the people that the, it, in most cases you you kind of need your characters to be like aware of the of what matters and they can like there's there's look there's plenty of shows where the characters are are empty-headed 
nihilists and they're really funny the show it's always sunny in philadelphia which has been on for 14 years and is wildly popular is about four of the worst people who have ever walked the earth they're selfish and narcissistic and don't have any interest in anything outside of their own lives so it's obviously like it's entertainment it TV is a very big tent and there's a lot of room for a lot of different kinds of things. But I definitely think if the question is, is there more of a push for that now? Yes, there certainly is. There's more of a sense that people want to see characters reflected back at them who share a sense of like what matters in the world. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think storytellers and, and writers, they draw inspiration from what the world is around them. And so naturally, I mean, with our show, specifically with Raven's Home, when we saw like the rise of Greta Thunberg and people like that who were really inspiring youth and who were really making an impact, of course, we wanted to, you know, kind of involve that in some way because it's, yeah, it's important. You yeah. just draw inspiration from the real world. Yeah, definitely. And Navia, there was a question that came in for you. Um, someone asked, how do you work effectively and feel comfortable in an environment in which your colleagues may have different political and social perspectives? As a black person, I sometimes experience anxiety knowing that perhaps the people around me don't support the BLM movement. I'm reading that in first person for the adolescents. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's a great question. I think um, I work with a lot of adults, and so I think they they know not to approach that conversation in politics. <laughs> aren't really spoken about in my environment. However, um, I know what it's like to go to school and, and people having different views. I know what it's like to be in friend groups of people my age who all hold different views. And it is really difficult. I wish I had an answer, but I'm still dealing with that same thing. I mean, there are people that exist who, um, in this specific question, don't support that movement. That does sting, especially when it affects you directly. I wish I had an answer, but I really don't. I think at the end of the day, you just, <laughs> you have to be confident that those people will find their way and that they'll gain some perspective at some point. So we have another question here. Um, this one is for Mike and Pamela. When you approach more adult topics such as death, morality or inequality, do you actively try to present it in a way that's palatable for a younger audience, or does it just evolve into something more generally understandable through the process of analyzing the concept yourselves? I'd like to hear Pamela answer that in terms of her teaching. So when I, I I'm teaching undergraduates, and so I, res, I regard them as adults. So, and one of the things I've learned in teaching undergraduates, so because of the way philosophy is, it's tempting to think that you have to kind of walk before you run, but I've learned that that's a bad way to teach. And so my approach is to throw people right into the thickest, hardest problem and let them give it a try. Won't go well because they don't really have the tools <laughs> that I'm going to give them. In the They're going to fail. <laughs> but, but they see the problem. They get like, they, they get mm -hmm. into it and They'll then gracefully. <laughs> and then we and then we have then they know why it's worth trying to figure out like how to define this and what to do all those all those abstract things that Mike was like oh my god what's this about you've got some you know reason because you started with the problem of well why is it okay to kill one person to save five if it's a trolley but it's not okay to kill one person to save five when I'm transplanting the organs from a healthy person into sick people. That's a problem. Why, why is it okay in the one case and not the other case? So that's kind of a punt answer, but I don't, <laughs> I don't try to change it at all. I just give it. And I think people would have to be really very young before I would feel uncomfortable bringing, 
you know, the real problem to them. I did a, a, like a four session zoom class with my son. My son is 12 and I did like a little like philosophy club where we, they, the kids watched the show and then I would give them a couple episodes to watch. And then I would sort of like talk about the philosophical ideas within the episodes. It was really fun. And so we did the trolley problem at one and I was, and I sort of, I walked through the trolley problem with them. And then I talked about the version where you're shoving a giant weightlifter off a bridge. And then I talked about the version where a doctor decides to kill one innocent person and harvest his organs and put them into the bodies of five other people. And after I explained that one, there was like a beat. And then this one girl was like, this is really bleak. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. It's very bleak. But like they, you know, they're, they're 11 and 12 year olds and they were like on board. They were like, okay, let's talk about this. Like, I, I, I think that, the only danger is underestimating the ability of people, even as young as 11 or 12, to kind of process and deal with these issues. Like, again, I think that kids right now are growing up where from the moment they were aware that there is a world, they understood that the world is existentially threatened by various things. And they're, they've been forced to kind of internalize that. And so I, I didn't really dumb it down at all. I sort of was like, mm -hmm. this is the deal. Here's what these people were talking about. Let's get into it. And they did not flinch. So it's obviously those things are a little cartoony. It's like you're on a trolley and you're going to smush people or whatever. But so and I don't think I would get into real hardcore, you know, just war theory stuff with them or something that yeah. gets into really dark places. But like they're, they're, they're capable. They're capable of understanding and processing in a way that I think people often underestimate. Yeah, on behalf of young people, thank you guys for thinking that way. And thank you for understanding yeah. that we, we already think about concepts like that. Um, and I think the real danger is being able to talk them out and having an open space to analyze them. Yeah. yeah. Adolescents are often quite underestimated in terms of their abilities and their ways of thinking. Mike, I want to direct the next question to you. We're going to shift gears a little bit. Someone submitted a question saying, I'm a gay, gender, queer, 13-year-old who dreams of someday writing comedy. However, when watching comedy on TV, I barely see any representation of myself in any characters. How would you ensure LGBTQ plus to be more commonly and accurately portrayed in media? such as TV shows, movies, et cetera? And how can a person like me help move things along so that I can follow my dreams? Um, well, the good news for you, person who wrote this, is that if you were writing this five years ago, the answer would be like, good luck, kid. <laughs> but in the last, literally in the last five years, I personally have seen LGBTQIA plus representation not just double or triple, but like quintuple or octuple <laughs> or something in, in shows. The new show I'm working on, Rutherford Falls, has a has a non-binary character who uses they, them pronouns. And the character is played by a UCLA student, actually. I think, believe, believe they go to UCLA, named Jesse Lee, uh, who is non-binary in real life. And there is no big deal made of their status on the show. They are just allowed to be funny like everybody else and and that is there a long way to go before you know that before the lgbtqia plus community is accurately represented or numerically accurately represented in tv oh of course there is um it started from zero about 10 years ago and and it's just now ramping up but i think that what you are going to see over the next five ten years is an explosion of characters who are uh, every at every, from every part of that spectrum represented accurately and respectfully on television. Yeah. That I, I can't promise you that, but but that is the way that we are trending. And 
and it is a hard trend. It is, it's like a, a, a real, it's not like a, let's give lip service to something. It's like, no, we need to do this. And as far as you personally, the best way to do it is to make something great and work hard. And if you want to be an actor or a writer or whatever, like go through the same exact process that every single other person who wants to be an actor or a writer goes through. Write your story if you're a writer or go on auditions if you're an actor and just join the community and just be around. Mm -hmm. I think that like with all things, you know, when I was, I started at Saturday Night Live in 1998 when Tina Fey was the head writer and it was a huge deal that a woman was the head writer of Saturday Night Live. It had been on since 1975. They never had a female head writer. And now, you know, half of the writers in Hollywood are, are women and a ton of showrunners are women, not nearly enough, but many, many more. And... I think that, and, and we have largely moved on from the conversation about women in comedy to things like LGBTQIA in comedy or South Asians in comedy or East Asians in period dramas. Like we're, we're, we're making progress and the way that you know we're making progress is when you stop asking the question. Like, when are we gonna see this? Like some of those questions we've been able to stop asking or at least stop asking as frequently. And that's the real progress. The real progress comes when it just is a thing that is happening and you don't have to ask the question anymore. So there's no way to, for you personally to like forward the, the movement, except to just do something great and be undeniably great and, and make a show or make a movie or write something or act in something and just become part of the fabric that's woven together in Hollywood. Yeah. So moving on to a couple of the last questions we have here, since we're running out of time, one question that we had submitted from Jordan Levinson was, do you think that civic engagement on screen looks different based on the character's race? So this, I guess, would be for Mike and for Navia. I think, I, I think uh, civic engagement is uh, different based upon uh, somebody's race in, in real life as well. And so I think maybe, you know, TV reflects that. I think, I know uh, the character that I played, Nia, they talk a lot about kind of what it's like to grow up in an urban community and those specific issues that would affect an urban community and urban communities are majority popularized by Latinx people or African-American people. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it, it does, um, your race or your ethnicity can relate to the certain civic engagement and uh, political issues that you face. Yeah, I think it has to, right? I mean, the, the old way of talking about race was that people would brag about like not seeing race and being colorblind and stuff. And then it was only fairly recently that it was like, well, that's ignorant and stupid. Like you can't, <laughs> you can't conflate everybody into one giant pile. And like, for example, on, on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I haven't actively worked on Brooklyn Nine-Nine in a while. Dan Gore, who created it with me, runs that show, but they did an episode a couple of years ago where Terry Crews' character was racially profiled. He's a police officer, but he was in plain clothes and another cop racially profiled him. And they used it as a way to talk about that issue. And part of the part of what made it a really good story was that there wasn't one perspective right it wasn't like everyone rallied behind terry in exactly the same way in fact andre brower's character his captain had a totally different perspective on what he should do and that perspective came from look i'm a gay black police captain i know what happens if you report this guy what's going to happen is you're going to be sidelined and there's going to be retaliation and you have a very promising career and you could become a captain or even higher. And if your career got derailed because of this, that would be a shame. And then Terry's character was like, yes, this is the right thing to do. And meanwhile, Andy Samberg's character was like, how, where do I fit in as a not black? <laughs> like, how do I deal with this? And his fiance slash wife, Melissa Fumero, who's Cuban was like, how do I fit into this? Like all of the different, 
perspectives are important and they all are different and they all need to be explored because I think that the, uh, there's a problem with representation, in my opinion, when you treat any group of people monolithically, when you say like mm -hmm. all of this kind of person have this perspective, like at some level, everyone is an individual and has different personal experiences and has a different background and a different outlook. And so you have to be really specific and you have to try the best kind of progress is when you say like, there's a panoply of possible ways to react to this. Mm -hmm. And all of the things that make you, you are going to play into how you react to this and mm -hmm. would be ashamed to just sort of say like, this is the way to respond, or this is the way anyone should feel. And the more specific we can get ethnically, gender wise, or anything, I think the more people will feel seen and feel like whatever they believe is, is okay and valid. Yeah. And the more that we learn too, when we can see all those different. Right. Sides. Totally. Absolutely. Like the more it will feel like, okay, that's a thing I hadn't thought of before. That's a perspective I hadn't considered. Yeah. Yeah. So as we get toward the end of our live stream, this has been such an incredible discussion. I wanted to ask a question to all three of you um, that someone submitted. What is something that you'd say to a young person who wants to make a difference in their community? So Navia, we can have you start, move on to Pamela and end with Mike. I think, uh, well, the answer is almost within the question. I think just reach out and, and, and to your community, whether that's your friends or um, if you have a sibling who you know um, would support you and help you with something. I think it's uh, really just starting somewhere. And I think that often uh, starts with just personal relationships that you have with people and building your own personal network from there and a support system to help you make a difference within your community. Starting small and then, you know, it evolves into something bigger and, and impactful. And whoever submitted that question, I really respect you and, and I encourage you and I'm very excited that you're curious about what you can do for your community. I'm pretty much going to say the same thing. I would say, find your team. And and Mike's comment about, about town halls. So, <laughs> I mean, I, when I moved into Santa Monica, which is a city within the massive thing of LA, but it's still a pretty sizable population. For various reasons, I ended up getting involved in local local government things. It's tiny. It's just a tiny little group of people. And there's a neighborhood group. It's just a tiny little group of people that really make a difference and that really work together. So if you can find your team and and make your impact that way, I think that's it's, it's amazing what can be done, actually. I would second that. But I would also say that there's a sort of analogy, I think, in my own career of being a writer. I remember in the early days of my first job at Saturday Night Live, I was talking, I, I was really struggling. I really was finding it hard to figure out how to be successful. And I was talking to a friend of mine who wrote in the show, and I was just like, I just feel like I don't know how to do this. And he goes, nobody knows how to do this. And I was like, oh my God, it was like a revelation. And, and, I, and I, it's, a, it's a very good lesson, I think, because if you're trying to make a difference in something, if you're thinking about like running for a local, you know, school board, you know, representative at your school, or you're trying to start a nonprofit or whatever it is you're trying to do, there will be a moment where you think to yourself, I, oh, I just don't know how to do this. And what's <laughs> important to know is that no one knows how to do it. Whatever the thing is you're doing, nobody knows how to do anything. Like it, there is there is a real, um, the, the people who are successful in activism, I think, are the people who ignore that nagging voice in the back of their head that tells them that they don't know what they're doing. Because the truth is when you, when you get into any structure or any kind of organization, you very quickly realize that no one has any idea what they're doing. No one's actually good at it. Everybody's doing it by trial and error. Every, the people, some people are just completely faking it. 
like you, you have to overcome that doubt that is inevitable that you feel like you're in over your head or that you don't know how to accomplish something because I, I promise you, like no one actually does. All of the people who have accomplished anything new or great had a moment where they just realized like, oh, no one else knows how to do this either. So it might as well be me. Like that, that really, all that's people. it. It's all yeah. people. It's yes. like, it, it's not like there's some machine out there. It's, it's decision makers and people all the way up and yep. you just find your way through there. And then yes. the best lesson I got from my mother who has since told me it's because she didn't know what else to say to me, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a way. Like you run into a problem and she'd just be like, no. I'd be like, well, what do I do? And it turns out mom was thinking, I don't know what you do. But she just said, well, well there's a will, there's a way. And I yeah. would just, okay. The, the, way I, will, the way I think of it is like, I, I, you're, you're constantly in a position where you feel like, oh, I, I didn't get the manual. Like, or I, or I missed orientation. Like that's the feeling that like, that you just like, I, somebody t must have told me or all of us how to do this. And I just wasn't there that day. I was homesick from school when they handed out the manual, but yeah. there is no manual. Nobody, there was no orientation. No one told anybody how to do it. And so the only question is, are you going to fight your way through it and just kind of like frump around and, and blow it a million times and then eventually figure out how to do whatever it is you're trying to do? Or are you going to give up and just keep that in your mind? Like that is the, the, a, a good piece of advice that I got from my friend is like, no one actually knows how to do anything. It's all, <laughs> all, it's all people guessing and trying and failing. And so if someone's going to do anything, it might as well be you. Yeah. And if all else fails, just think, what would Leslie Knope do? See what <laughs> <laughs> Perfect ending. Yeah. Powerful advice. Thank you all. That concludes this episode of the Scholars and Storytellers podcast. A very special thanks to our wonderful guests, Michael Schur, Dr. Pamela Hieronymi, and Navia Robinson, and our moderator, Myra Karan. If you have a minute, rate and review us. And if you have any friends who you think would like the show, share it with them. If you are interested in learning more about our work, please visit us at scholarsandstorytellers.com and follow our social media accounts by searching Center for Scholars and Storytellers. This podcast was produced by the Center for Scholars and Storytellers, with special thanks to Jim Ools for creating the intro music, the UCLA Film School, Nora Leibenthal, Annie Myers, and Jeremy Shing. Goodbye for now, and thank you for listening.